Hey everyone, this episode of Making Movies is Hard is sponsored by Film Casualty Insurance Agency. Ulrich, tell us what Film Casualty is. Well, in short, it's a way for you to find affordable, reliable, and comprehensive insurance coverage for your production or film business. The best part is they understand filmmaking, so they'll only sell you what's really relevant to your project. Everyone needs insurance, and if you don't have it, you better get it. So visit them at filmcasualty.com, and thanks guys for sponsoring the podcast. Yeah, we really appreciate the support. All right, without further ado, let's start the show. Let's start it. Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, a podcast about the everyday struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Purcell. And I'm Timothy Plain. Each week we discuss filmmaking topics and give you our point of view on them, not as experts, but just as two filmmakers trying to figure it out for ourselves. This week we've got another guest. We're joined by Chloe Weaver. Chloe is an up-and-coming Los Angeles DP, having shot a number of features, documentaries, and TV shows, including an episode of Chef's Table, which I haven't seen, but I've heard is quite amazing. Oh, it's so good. And she's also worked in the camera department on some of the biggest TV shows and movies that you could think of, including Two and a Half Men, Nightcrawler, and Argo, just to name a couple of them. Hey, Chloe, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so is that accurate um your intro uh were those yeah. shows and movies things yeah you, you did were good. on okay good. yeah awesome i'll get i feel like i'll get into my involvement in them maybe as we go along and explain okay. that but yes it's accurate so chloe and i met um almost a year ago working on a really awesome project together um and yeah it was really fun to work with you and i you know kind of even back then i was like i gotta have her on the show i gotta have her on the show but <laughs> i didn't want to like be the first thing i said after we worked together so <laughs> introduce it later on you what'd know. you guys work on together uh we shot a kickstarter video for um a calligraphy school in berkeley and and I don't think that description does it justice. We somehow no, had this doesn't. remarkable time <laughs> working on a Kickstarter video. I don't know. It felt um, it felt like we were making something like really prolific and like epic right. together. Um, well, it's really more like a documentary that happened to be um, a Kickstarter video, but a really true. like high end documentary <laughs> with like. What's it? You know, in the vein of like Chef's Table, shot very artistically. Exactly. Yeah, a lot of okay. like um, experts in in calligraphy and different writing styles were there with us too, like taking the place of chefs. You know what I mean? Like really try to really try to make their work look as epic as it is in real life. Yeah, yeah. I remember when Ulrich was talking about this project. It was very fun. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was really fun. And you know, Chloe had like a great team with her, and you know, all these fun toys, like a you know, really nice dolly and you know, slider, and we just did these really cool shots, and it was like, okay, like you could make a documentary look really, really, really dope. Um, especially the motion portraits you guys did. I was always just kind of blown away by those, and be like, okay. yeah, I should, I should do motion portraits like that yeah. if I ever get a chance. Those are awesome. Those are awesome, right? Yeah. But okay, before we get into like our main topic and everything, can you just give us like the quick one minute bio of who you are and what you do? Sure, absolutely. I'll try to make it a minute. Um, I'm from Napa. I'm from Napa, and I think that's part of what made the experience of working in Berkeley with you so unique. Is because I, I, anytime I can tie in kind of my hometown to my new career. I'm like very excited about it. So I'm just a kid from Napa. 
I, um, I grew up in a rural situation with horses and such and started making videos kind of like around the time of Tom Green, um, and the emergence of like the kind of silly, um, lo-fi video. And I really kind of fell into loving that and made a lot of silly videos, but then things that became, um, like fairly narrative and fell in love with that, decided to go to film school, um, got accepted down in Long Beach, went to Long Beach State and, a big Kickstarter was after graduating Long Beach State, I, I had the good fortune of working on a feature film with about 30 other students um, for the summer after graduation. And that was like the beginning of everything for me. Oh, nice. <clears throat> I learned a first AC on that, on that film um, with an HVX camera. Oh, and yeah. I just like ended up having this remarkable experience. You know, doing something for 30 days, you can get pretty good at it. And doing something with, you know, in a low pressure situation with students you just went through college with, like, it's pretty ideal. You're all trying new things. There's, there's no judgment. Everyone's kind of going for it. And that was the environment that I, I came out of right out of school. So like, that couldn't have been better. And, um, I felt like after that moment, I had like a single skill, which was, um, focus pulling. And granted, like, if you know anything about cameras, like, focus pulling on an HVX is, like, really almost meaningless. But, like, I felt like <laughs> I had this thing to offer, and I went with it. I was, like, pitching myself and knew what I was after after that moment. So I would say that was the beginning. Did you have the whole um, old school, like, using cinema lenses on the HVX setup? Or was it just literally just an HVX with, like, the built-in lens? <laughs> That um, that came later. I definitely got into the cinema lenses, but no, this first experience was like me on the barrel of the built-in lens and oh, taking it my. really seriously. <laughs> that's that's, an, that's pretty amazing. Wait, so yeah. you're you felt like you were so good at focus pulling. You're like, this is my trajectory. Kind of. And let's just say that there's more to it than just the focus pulling because that would be hopefully I wasn't so dis disillusioned but sure. you know but you it was the it. idea I really liked it it was the idea of like running the camera department and being responsible for that item right and and all the things that go with it you know you have a second AC so suddenly you have like an employee and you're like you're running that person and you're responsible for right. all the footage and like you're moving I mean you're the first you're going to work on every single shot you're going to move the camera from here to there and and at night, you're going to make sure that thing is safe. And like, it was the whole thing. It was all the responsibilities that went with that. And then like, granted, maybe that first experience, I wasn't having like a lot of art artistry and focus pulling, but that came like immediately after, you know, when you get the, the lettuce adapter with the cinema lenses or whatever, like the next step, the next progression. And, and I actually went like right from that job into like learning to work on 16 millimeter and 35 millimeter and having some of like these really challenging jobs really, really early in my career, like candlelit short films where critical focus was like really, really critical and learning, you know, to pull a tape measure and, and like that stuff just came immediately afterwards. So I got really, really wrapped up in like the desire to be good at that. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So when you, but when you were making films up in Napa before you went off to college, did you have any sense with, for what you wanted to do? You know what? I, I wish that I did. Uh, what I knew was I, I loved to edit actually. I loved to put the footage into uh, iMovie and 
get it assembled and then add music to it. And I thought that that was like, as, the moment you added music to it, I thought it was like, you've made something amazing and it has like emotion. And I really felt, <laughs> yeah, I really felt excited about the editing process. So I think that like my first thought was actually, I knew that I liked camera operating and I had always been like into still photography and such. But like, I think the idea of editing was my first notion. Like I'm going to go to film school and learn to edit. <clears throat> and is that what you did when you went to Long Beach? Did you learn editing? Not really. Funny enough, I kind of, I became this little like, um, I became a little bit shy in film school. I kind of, t I, I knew that I wanted to do production, but I was too afraid of submitting my own work. And so, you know, it was one of those schools where you've got to submit to be accepted into the production program. And otherwise, you'll study film theory, right? So I kind of studied film theory, being a little too scared to like put my, you know, my own work out there and risk like some criticism. And so I was the person who was in film theory, but like got onto everyone's set just by being charming and like doing things like sound or, uh, I don't know, I was like a producer at one point, like doing things that I knew I wasn't actually um, interested in, but like, I just wanted to be on set and I hadn't done it the conventional way at school. And I, I still don't understand why I did it that way, but I was just a little intimidated. And so, you know, that's what really compounded this after school experience with like finally being in the camera department where, where I wanted to be the whole time and like getting there after all that time. And, and that came from your school. So like you graduated and then you had this opportunity through through class or through friends from your school? Yeah, through friends. Through through um, specifically um, someone named Matt Irwin, who was a grade under me, but he was already a cinematographer. I mean, this guy was amazing. And, it, and his father is an ASC cinematographer, so it all makes sense. He grew up on set, um, you know, from like age eight, working and learning from professionals in the camera department so meeting him I was like I knew who to cling to and I was like this guy can show me everything he knows and he was thankfully very willing to do so and we became this little team so it would it so he invited me to this kind of summer movie it wasn't really organized by the school but a lot of kids got involved because you know they needed all these positions filled and it was free labor so, you know, we all crashed like on the living room floor of the director for like a solid 30 days while we made this movie. Wow, that's amazing. And then so you, you work on your first movie, you're out, you're graduated from college. H how do you get your first um, jobs on bigger sets? Like, you know, did you immediately jump into doing more first AC roles or did you like have to start as a camera PA? Like what was the next step from there? Yes. Okay. So as I've told you, I felt great confidence in focus pulling. And, um, and I, and I just, um, anyone I would meet or any set I would get invited to, sometimes I was getting invited to sets as a PA or as a grip or something completely random. And, and even when that would happen, I would, I would look at the camera department and I would be like, I knew for a fact that I wanted to be there. And at the end of the job, I would, I would approach the DP and say, Hey, I was, I was working as a grip this time, but you know, I know. I know the camera that you're working with and, and maybe in the future you can hire me as your camera assistant. And I would just like, I would just pitch myself just like continually to any person that I met. And um, that really worked out well. And eventually I, I was firsting. I was firsting. I skipped seconding like a hundred percent and just was focus pulling and like totally driven to do that. And I somehow got um, introduced to a 
guy named Troy Blishock. And Troy was like a union first AC looking for a camera PA on a TV series called Leverage. And this was like a really big break for me. I had to interview a couple different times with Troy and he's like a very intimidating person. And I just, you know, I, the role of camera PA is like not very luxurious, but I knew that it would be my first introduction to a union set. And then I could watch from some professionals and I was like dying to have this job. So I do get the job. I work for like four months on Leverage, the TV show. I'm seeing what a union set looks like and what Troy can do at the focus floor. And I'm just like enamored. And, um, and I learn, you know, how to do time cards and like manage equipment as it comes from the rental house and like those procedures for, you know, union, whatever, union, the, the union way of working. Um, I also learned to like coil a BNC properly and like, and, and what, what, how does Troy mark the floor when he's pulling focus? You know, I just like tried to pull little, little gems for myself and I would even take off days or like work on the weekends at the first ACS I was working as a camera PA for them. So I was like, I was like full speed ahead. And I also met in the, in that same time period, like this, this Norwegian guy named Vigo, he was another first AC and he kind of gave me like the, the hardcore like Nazi version of like learning to second AC for him where he was like really mean and really strict about rules. And if I, if I'd done something wrong, I would get yelled at and like that really molded me as well. And uh, I felt like I, I exited that relationship like with a militant understanding of like how to run a department. Really quick, I want to jump in here and I want to ask, did you find at any point that you were being discouraged from entering the camera department being a woman? I did not. I, I you know, you guys prepped me that you would ask me that. I feel like I've had, I definitely have had some runnings with different like gender issues. I think some, there's been some instances uh, where I haven't like had the respect of an individual, but I've never ever felt like I couldn't make it in the camera department. No one's like, hey, little missy, you know, you have to carry 50 pounds and this is not really like a job for women. That's awesome. I mean, that's really cool. Yeah. I mean, certain people have made comments like that, I suppose, but I don't know. That has never, it's never been in my head. And um, I think, you know, I'm kind of like this girl who's really equipped for this because I grew up like a super tomboy and like I've only <laughs> wrangling horses. had wrangling horses just being like dirty <laughs> in the neighborhood. Yeah, like that's I had funny. like a short haircut till I was like in seventh grade. Like I really, I can really hang out with the boys and like that's kind of my preference often. So I don't know if it was happening and I was just dismissing it or, or what, but I've always been like, I'm out, I'm out to prove something, you know what I mean? So if they're like, yo, that Lambda case is probably too heavy for you, I'd probably try to pick it up with one hand or something. You know, I'd just like do something to <laughs> prove them wrong and that'd be part, yeah. of, part of my mission, you know? Yeah, if anyone doesn't know, those cases are humongous. So <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, yes, the worst case to carry. That's awesome. That's awesome that you never felt that. I mean, you know, because I was hoping you were going to say that. I was hoping it wasn't going to be like the same as the other person that we spoke to's experience. You know, because um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it would be terrible if that was happening everywhere. <laughs> you know? Gosh, 
Well, I know some people do struggle with it. It's definitely um, a presence. I just have navigated away from it, I suppose. I, I have a lot of wonderful male mentors that have helped me around it, I think. Nice. Um, the question I was going to ask was, do you feel like having that experience where someone is treating you poorly, um, you know, when you're first starting out, like being yelled out for making mistakes and being yeah. really strict, do you, do you feel like that's hel- that's helpful to have that experience? Or do you feel like... It was only helpful for you in that situation. I mean, I'm I'm just curious. I have a, I have my own thoughts about this stuff, but I'm just interested in yeah. You know, I feel like it was a bit of a rite of passage. Like in a in a strange way, I felt like I was lucky because someone was taking the time. It wasn't like they were just mad at me all the time. They were just like trying to do a hard job as a first AC, and like they just needed me to pull my weight. You know, so when I would like. I just remember this show was on on film, and if I was marking incorrectly, this guy would probably miss focus. So I think it was kind of like he was just trying to get, he was trying to nail his job. And so if I if I fell short, um, that was gonna that was gonna hinder him. So no, I I took it I took it with uh, I took it well. I might have cried a time or two, but privately and I think I was mostly like excited that someone was investing some time in me and and like taking a moment to be upset that I was doing something wrong and maybe showing me how to do it right I remember there was a night where um we arrived on set we were shooting like in this freezing cold place and so all the batteries on the way to this to the set was they had like drained and so my job as a second AC is to like charge batteries. That's like a clear job title description. And, um, but I was too young to really know that I was too early in my career. And so like, I didn't, I definitely didn't charge the batteries and it was like a huge problem. Like maybe it would have been fine if it weren't so cold. Maybe some of them would be, would have been good to go. But like in this instance, like everything was just dead the next morning. And I like really heard about that. And guess what? I would never do that ever again. And there's like a handful of things just like that, like having flashed a mag before or like formatted something, a card before, you know, you're supposed to, or, I mean, all those mistakes, like you're kind of really like feel grateful, grateful for in, in retrospect, because you'll never make the same mistake. Again. Yeah. You know, I, I, as, as a PA, like I worked under some sets where there was that kind of attitude, like super strict, like don't make mistake, like, you know, people getting fired like left and right on day one, you know, and oh just like, it's kind of terrifying. And I don't necessarily agree with those practices, but I feel like, you know, having that experience really helps you to understand the hierarchy of a set in some ways and get Definitely. you aware of like, you know, what your expectations are and, and, and help you to take it really seriously. Because I feel like the worst thing that you can do is come on a set and not take it seriously. And sometimes that sort of negative energy can be helpful for that. Um, but I don't know. Like, I don't feel like I'm seeing that as much these days. Like, this kind of, like, super strict yelling type of person. But um, I don't know. Maybe that's just because I've been lucky that the sets I've been on have been, like, overly positive. You know? What are you talking about? We've been working with Ed. He's super mean to people. <laughs> is he? He's not mean to me. He, well, I guess, the, see, the thing is with Ed... Ed is interesting because I don't know. Ed listens to the show, so he's going to hear all about this. But, uh, you know, I feel like Ed is really serious, but Ed's not throwing tantrums and he's not like yelling. I don't know. 
Is he yelling at people? It's I don't a calm, know. Maybe. It's a calm, it's searing a calm anger. Is it? Yeah, and frustration with people not doing yeah. their jobs properly. I didn't, I've right. never seen him outburst and actually yell at anybody. But, uh, you know, i definitely seen him be unhappy, you know, that's for sure. But I don't know. <laughs> I think... Yeah, anyways, we're getting off topic here. Um, well, I, I think that, uh, so, okay, I've, I'm first AC, I'm a young first AC. I have this background of people whipping me into shape. And I think that that actually set me apart from like maybe some other classmates or other people like in my same age group because I'd been on the union set and that was like pretty difficult. And then I'd been with the Norwegian like scary first AC uh, mentor and 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 these things prepared me for union work like sooner than maybe like my other kind of similar in age counterparts and so I actually kind of like owe that that um, discipline and and like that early that early base of knowledge like to me getting ahead I think earlier than others so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't take that back at all right right. So after that experience with, um, you know, the, the guy who's yelling you at yelling at you while you're working as a second AC, mm -hmm. do you just go to your next job as a first AC or do you have to second for a, a while um, before you get that opportunity? Well, I would say that I was like almost always firsting. And then I ran into some people like at rental houses. I, I ended up meeting these people that were like actually big league first. And when I met them, I realized that I kind of really owed it to myself to kind of go back in time and like learn from them. So that is exactly how I get involved with movies like Argo and Nightcrawler and Captain America. I met this person, Steve Cueva, who's a first AC, who's like been working for 25 years, like from loader to second AC to now first AC on major, major movies. And he's, he's the hardest worker I've ever seen or met. And, um, I kind of just like hung out with him. I, yeah, I was a first in my own mind, but like really I understood that he was the first, you know what I mean? And I just was like, hey, can I come and work your your camera preps for free? I'll like tape up all your cases. I just took all like, I, I tried to be as modest as I possibly could and just try to get, you know, into his world. And and so I kind of went from first thing and then I took I took these opportunities to like take a, a real backseat and then actually learn from someone professional. So he would take me along and I would camera PA or I would load film or I would second if I was lucky on those big movies. Did you have some sort of plan in place? Like in five years, I'm going to be a full on DP or anything like that. And you're just kind of enacting the, the sequence of events that you needed to get there or you're just kind of like taking it as it comes. Um, I think it's a little combination. I absolutely know f for sure that I want to be a DP. I've always known that, but like kind of like what happened to me in college where I got like a little intimidated by the whole world. I think that like a version of that happened to me as a first AC. First of all, you like, you find out you're good at something and that people love you in that position. Like, and that really inspires you to kind of do that maybe for longer than you meant to or expected to. And you kind of suppress your own dream because you're like making money and like doing bigger movies every time you're doing a bigger movie and it's like the opportunities keep funneling in. So um, I don't know. I guess, I guess I knew for certain that I would be a DP eventually. I maybe firsted longer than I thought I would, but it was a combination of like being appreciated and good at it. And um, just basically what happened to me is like, because I didn't pick up lighting in, in film school, 
working as a first became my film school because I worked for like these three or four like incredible DPs and I would just like study their lighting. And so I learned every single thing that I know about lighting from these people I worked for as their first DC because I'd yeah. lay on the camera and you watch the scene get built and lit like right before you and you're like, you're, you're right next to their ear if you've got a question about something. Like I worked for people that were really generous with information and um, I couldn't have skipped that process, you know, like I, I basically was a first AC for nine years and and there were three people, um, Sean Connedy, Danny Motor and Adam Brecker, who have who have basically bestowed on me everything that I know now. That's awesome. I feel like. Um, yeah. A lot of people who don't start their careers in L.A. don't get the opportunity to have that kind of apprenticeship mm-hmm. and learn from other people. And they just kind of end up figuring and figuring it out themselves and. Um, I, I'm a huge believer in that apprenticeship but you, in order to really learn how to do it and how to do it at like a really high level you have to learn from people that are already doing it I think that too and, uh, and I, I suppose I had the luxury of also you know between these jobs with these these um, DPs that I mentioned I would also shoot things on the side like constantly doing things for free on the weekends um, you know like endlessly so it was a matter of like learning from someone who knows what they're talking about and then going and making mistakes and like low risk scenarios on your own and like the combination of those two things. And then there was another really giant factor in why I stopped firsting. And it's because I really felt like it was just going to get too hard for me, honestly, like focus pulling is insane and is getting even more challenging by the day as like sensor size, sensor sizes are growing on cameras and just like all around like digital filmmaking has just changed the process, right? Like I started firsting when film was still present and, um, you know, people took tape measurements and like made really like had substantial time with rehearsals to make marks on the ground. And like, it was this, it was this art form that kind of incorporated like film world and digital world combined. And now it's like a full transition over to digital and people are using like, incredible tools like cinetapes and light rangers to like go into the next era of first ACing, which is like, you just have to have this inherent skill to pull focus from a monitor. And I just don't have that. Oh yeah. Just being able to pull it from a monitor without taking measurements of any kind. It's, it's yeah. And also just like, you have to think that that's fun. Right. Like, I think I was more attracted to like the leadership part of first aid and and like the calculated, like measuring and knowing distance by like heart. And I I liked all that kind of technical stuff. And now it's just this different thing. And you have to have a different set of skills and you have to find that enjoyable. And I was like, I did a movie with Danny Motor called The Secret in Their Eyes. And I felt like that was like the most challenged I've ever been as a focus puller. I was the key first AC on that movie and Julia Roberts and Chuatel Ejiofor and, and um, Nicole Kidman, they were in that movie. And I was like, this is, this is so epic. I am terrified every day that I'm going to screw this up. You know what I mean? And it was like, it was the biggest push of my life to like, I loved working for Danny and wanted nothing more than to give him a flawless, movie you know as as far as focus and like just my role and keeping the department tight and stuff like that and so when I got through that movie I was like I'm ready to retire because it was so it was so challenging I was like on the edge of um 
I was just, I was just nervous about it all the time. And I was kind of like, this might be, I need to kind of plan my exit from this. Like, I love it, but I don't feel like I have the chops for the next, like, the, the next sensor size jump in cameras. I'm going to lose my huh. mind. Is part of the, the transition from film to digital, the lack of rehearsals too? Definitely. Exactly. Exactly. And, and the then what's the sensor size have to do with focus pulling? Um, sensor size will get more shallow. As the sensor size grows, depth of field gets more shallow. So, like, imagine pulling focus uh, on... It'd be really fine-tuned. Yeah, though. I mean, yeah, you just have to be, like, really gifted um, at chasing that that shallow focus, which is, is like, fun, you know? It really is. And, and a lot of people have great skill in doing that and enjoy that. So I'll leave that to them. Right. But, and <laughs> so you don't have time to measure in, in these movies, too? Is that because you don't have rehearsals, so they're just not measuring? or? Yeah, but also it's like there's almost no point in measuring any longer because focus is honestly so shallow and it's changing all the time like that there's certain things that just can't be measured it's like not even nothing's going to stay consistent to your to your measurement like if you're working on a handheld movie or something like that like those values and distances are going to like be changing after you've rolled your tape measure back if the operator took a little slight move like it's all it's all for naught so it's just a it's a there's a new approach to it where you know it's not about measuring so much it's just the feel of the like the focus knob and having wireless focus and positioning yourself in a place to have like a good angle of view on the action and there's just there's just different methods you're using your cinetape as a tool and you know sometimes referencing that sometimes looking with your eyes sometimes using the screen exclusively like there's all these things and and that helps you get the shot. So I guess what I don't understand is, it, it, you know, besides the monitor, how do you tell that's in focus? Like, how can you look at the camera and the actors in this and the scene and, and tell if it's in focus or not? I mean, you know, the other AC we talked to we talked about that too, but I don't really get how that works necessarily. Sure. So I mean, you're gonna now. Okay, imagine film days. You didn't have an HD monitor as a reference, right? You had like a really kind of shitty, hard to see reference screen in like SD. So you were never going to look at that and judge focus, right? So focus is exactly related to distance. So if your actor is standing at 10 feet from the camera and your lens is set to 10 feet on the barrel, like that should be sharp definitively. If they take two steps forward, well, then you've got to roll that focus knob forward to eight feet to keep them in focus. So that's like that's like the the mathematical like distance related way of keeping things in focus and checking that way. Um, but yeah, now that there's the luxury of HD and high definition monitors, like you know right away if something in focus because you can see for yourself and you can roll through it if you're in doubt. You can like roll the knob back, watch focus drift back to like the chair behind the person, then back to their eyes where you see like a crisp like peak in their pupils using peaking or, you know, some other monitor useful tool like that. Nice. And then the Cinetape thing, what, what does that come into play? Yeah. What, what is that anyways? <laughs> Cinetape is like um, a device that you can mount um, over your map box that's sending uh, like a sonar reading, literally straight forward to wherever you've pointed it. So, right. You're, you're, you're aiming for people's, eyes to be in focus clearly right so you can angle your cinetape just above your map box to look straight ahead at your actor and so it's going to send a sonar reading that hits the actor and sends sonar back and then gives a distance reading to where that that actor is standing right so as the actor approaches 
the sonar will track the distance and it'll go from five feet to three feet to, to two foot two. It's dead accurate down to an inch, right? So let's say you have a Steadicam shot where you're tracking someone. Well, it's really valuable to have Cinetape because you can just have a continual readout to where that person is and how, how far in front of them. Uh, how far in front of the camera they are. Like if they if they maintain a five foot distance, that's great for a focus puller, but that's probably not going to happen. It's more going to be like drifting from like four foot five to five foot one, and and you have a continual reference using that cinetape. Um, you can that's probably still pretty abstract for you, but like you literally have that reading five foot two or whatever that appears on your on your remote your excuse me your remote focus device. And you can kind of like quickly reference that if you're in in a moment of doubt or something, you know? Yeah, that's yeah. pretty cool. At what point does it just become automatic, though? Like, why do we need people to do this anymore? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, I think that there's still artistry to focus pulling, and you can't really replicate that the same way with like an automatic device. You just can't. Um, there's so much storytelling that happens with focus. I don't know that the technology we would have to advance quite a lot more to replace humans. I think um, I see what you're after. There, there are some funny enough. Like, I think focus pulling is genuinely so hard nowadays. But there are certain automatic features to to certain wireless devices. They have ways of tracking, like using a cinetape, where you, you can kind of like request that the handset like pulls automatically. Like, so long as something is right in line with that cinetape, like, for instance, like, if you were shooting a poster on a wall and you were just doing a direct push-in to a flat surface like that, you could actually do that with an automatic setting on your wireless focus. That is possible. And that'll sometimes, like, really, really save you in, like, a really, really critical dolly move or something like that. But it's not 100% accurate and you can't always rely on it. And I think it's just a matter of, like, as a focus puller learning when you can or cannot use a tool like that. Yeah. Well, speaking of the artistry of focus pulling, um, I saw over the weekend, Call Me By Your Name, and there's yeah. a lot of shots where they they go out of focus on purpose or focus on things that you wouldn't normally be focused on in a scene. Yes, yes. Did yes, you notice that? that? Did you see it? I did. I saw a lot of interesting focus things. I And that's, I would love to hear someone talk about that movie because you're right, they just... They roll out of focus sometimes on a on a scene that's like halfway through and they're on the pillar and then <laughs> yeah they're like this is very strange and so I don't know I'm not convinced that those are I'm not convinced that those are on purpose I don't know though oh, I, yeah. I'd love for someone to tell me I don't know I don't know I don't know either um, I, I as an audience member I was a little distracted by some of them but I did think it yeah, was in, yeah, an yeah. interesting choice if they did make that choice I was like oh I wonder why they're doing this. Totally. Well, I will say that my work on Chef's Table, that all began um, with me working as a focus puller. And I mean, Chef's Table is like the world's best job anyway, because you're traveling. Um, I got to see 16 countries in three years doing this job. But the best part about it was the storytelling through focus pulling. It was like Which episode endless. did you shoot? Um, I shot an episode um, about Nancy Silverton in season three, mm. but I've pulled focus on probably 12 others and oh, wow. uh, had a, just a st 
stellar time, like traveling the world with this little crew responsible for making that show. And it's just um, the whole approach. I got to work on the first episode ever shot, which was in Melbourne, um, Australia. And we didn't really know what the show was yet. We were like literally just doing it for the first time. And we had nine days to shoot. And we just didn't know what it was. But we knew that we were going to shoot wide open as our aesthetic, having really shallow depth of field. And we knew that we were going to shoot a documentary using prime lenses instead of zooms, right? So, like, that combination of this really, really shallow focus paired with these gorgeous Sumacron lenses, they were actually Cook S4s in the first season, but they ended up being coming like us um, thereafter. Um, that gave this gorgeous look that I think everyone has, like, really grown to like. Um, and I felt really responsible for that first um, that first episode, that first season of like the focus is like so in control of what you're looking at the whole time. I mean, the sure. food photography and I'm telling you where to look because there's only one little tiny hair in focus anyway. Like that was so fun for me. And it's like, and then, and, and, and it's a documentary world, right? So nothing's planned. And so my it DP comes on to be, you it, to make that decision. Oh, totally. My DP would just like aim at stuff in a kitchen and I just had to kind of like whip it into focus, like wherever I felt like it would look best. And so that was like a real joy, like maybe the highlight of focus pulling for me because there was storytelling involved. It was great. Yeah. And you had room to, to just, you know, experiment and see what works and find things in the frame that were interesting to focus on. Absolutely. And then sometimes, you know, like my DP would have to adjust his composition to like where my focus was. And then it's like, then it's like this, this double collaboration and we're not talking about it. It's just happening. And it keeps, you're doing, you know, a hundred frames in a minute sometimes like with documentaries. And so it's just like this fun kind of mind melding. And, and that helped, you know, Adam, the DP and myself, like we really, really ended up having a really similar aesthetic and like sense of composition and, um, just kind of mind meld after that. So, you know, getting a chance to DP an episode of the chef's table, is that something that commonly happens to, to first ACs who, you know, work on a show for a couple seasons or something? Does that like, is that part of the regular progression or is that sort of like, um, you know, more of a unusual circumstance? I think it might be a little unusual and a little special, but I do think that it was a, it was a show, you know, that no one knew if it would do well or not. And then as it starts to do well, it starts to get bigger and expand. And so the the idea of like doing more episodes came up and like, you know, there's only do, two DPs that started out the series and those two DPs like do other work as well. So I think it was a matter of loving the team that we had expanding to do more episodes and needing to cover their bases on like what if Adam's not available because he's shooting a feature and like but we have three more episodes to come and so they, they I think they wanted to reward the people that helped them make the show good in the first place and like they had already recognized like talents maybe beyond focus pulling for myself and there's there's other you know first ACs that are getting opportunities on this show as well so I think it's a matter of like trusting the people you've hired um, we've all been kind of loyal and passionate about the show and like giving us a chance. It's really like to their credit. It's like they really trusted us with something great and we have little opportunities to show them that we can do it as we go. Cause yes, we're focus pulling, but also 
we're set loose for like a day and we'll go collect B-roll. And, and so the B-roll is a big hit. And so they know that you can compose frames or, you know, in, in the case of Adam and myself, like he had to leave for a wedding and I covered a few days of his episode on Dominique Crenn in San Francisco. And so I could handle that. And, and so you just kind of like take things as they come. And so long as you don't screw them up, you might get another opportunity. I think, I think that's kind of how it went more or less. <laughs> nice. I noticed that in on your IMDb credits, your um, your deep or your cinematographer credit goes all the way back to 2009, and then the the Chef's Table episode we're talking about is 2017. So the question I have is, right, what's like the first? Is that really your first cinematography credit? And then also, like, what's the first cinematography credit you really want to take credit for? Because I have the same thing as like as a director. I there's movies I made before I made Man's Best Friend, but right. Man's Best Friend really <laughs> is the one I'm saying is my first film. Right, right, right. Yes, you know. Like I said, I've been trying to shoot on side for as long as I can remember. It's it's always been a thing and I and I'm a bit of an opportunist. So if someone wants me to shoot something, um, including way back in two thousand nine when I really had no idea what to do, I'm gonna say yes because I, I I'm not gonna let an opportunity pass and and I I'd prefer to be kind of um over my head than to, to miss the chance of doing it at all. So I would say that Chef's Table is the credit that I um, I have under my belt that I, I do kind of want to, to have start my career as yeah. a cinematographer. Like you own that one. Like I know what I, I was doing. I own that one. Yeah. I mean, even that, I don't know if I know what I was doing. I feel <laughs> sure. like I have so yeah. far to go. But But you have to, you know, that one was on TV and people see that. And I'm so lucky because... Sometimes that takes even longer for people, but I, I definitely have that as kind of like the beginning of my full commitment to DPing because I like basically, I, I basically turned away all firsting jobs after that came came out and I just said like, now's the time, you know? And then what happened for me is I decided to buy a camera as like a bit of a jumping off point um, that would kind of further my commitment to, to the transition, right? So... I had, I had always had some like focus pulling gear and like a, a side business with someone and that really worked out. And, and so the idea of transitioning over into DPing and owning a camera that I needed to pay back desperately, like that was, that was uh, the nail in the coffin for like putting down the focus knob and like only shooting now and, you know, only taking the next set of scary jobs that I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little nervous to take, but that I'm diving into. So what do you, how do you explain those eight years of cinematography credits leading up to Chef's Table? It's like, are those <laughs> yeah. learning experiences that just ended up on IMDb and that's just what they are? Like, what do you say about those? I should probably look up what those are. There's, there's been so many things that I can't even remember what makes it, its way to IMDb. I probably have another 25 that like didn't see the light of day. But yeah, I would say that they're all learning opportunities that Probably most of them are not very good, but it doesn't necessarily mean that um, my work wasn't good on them. Sometimes things just don't come together. You know, there's a, a million <laughs> okay. factors why. You don't um, want to apologize to anyone right now? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that I've always kind of given it my all. There's a lot of like documentaries that are kind of like partially finished in my, you know, in my um, history 
that I, I hope to get back to or like narratives that I tried something new on, but maybe they're not ultimately very good. I think that that's probably what you can find in my history of, of cinematography. But yeah, I think a lot of, um, you know, primarily short films and short films, like I might be proud of them. They just don't have anywhere to go. So right, right. Um, I think that's probably what you'll find. A, a, a slew of um, short films that helped me figure out how to light a face and a room and how to use color and, and just what was I doing, you know, or, or how to, how to evolve your dolly move from wheelchair dolly to Dana dolly to finally convincing people to get you yeah. um, a Fisher 10, you know, like on the Ulrich thing, you know, <laughs> like on the, uh, <laughs> Inc. Academy. You know I mean? like just, just slowly pushing the envelope with each one of those. And it took since 2009 to like finally get where I am now. That's it. You have two documentaries on here, walking points and Dwayne Perkins take note. Mm -hmm. um what, what where do those fall i mean because those seem like right before chef's table um but are those things that you've been working on for a long time um the Dwayne perkins thing is actually a comedy stand-up and i don't know why it's categorized as a do documentary but it's on <laughs> netflix and it's a stand-up comedy show and um oh, cool that's awesome yeah i think i had like 500 dollars to light it like it's really it's made really cheap but it has a platform and it has like a ton of views and I think it's really funny and I mean that's one that I'm totally proud of. I I think that maybe you know if if someone doesn't know that I only had this $500 to light it then maybe you'd watch it and maybe be a little unimpressed but I had four camera operators working for me that day and I was up in like the control room calling shots and I mean that was like a totally exceptional experience for me and something I hadn't ever done before. I mean even the idea of shooting a comedy stand-up thing I had like absolutely no qualifications for. I just blindly said yes to it when it was offered and like that's what happened and it made its way to Netflix. So I can't be mad at that one. Oh, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, and then the Walking Points documentary um is also cool because that one is about fostering a relationship I had you know, with someone I met at USC film school, she was a director and I was a focus puller on one of her movies and, or on, I think two of her, of her movies. And when she found out I was shooting, she like out of the blue contacted me to shoot something and she just remembered liking me and thought I'd be a good person to collaborate with. So like, that's awesome too. You know, someone remembering you and your work ethic from before and like giving you an opportunity, even like I didn't have a reel to show her or anything. She was just like, Oh, I remember you and I'm sure you'll do a great job. It's like, great. I run with things like that. That's awesome. So let's talk about like you get, you got chef's table, you buy this camera. Like how do you get your first opportunity to DP a feature? Like did, did that, like I'm looking at limerence right here on your IMDb. Did that happen before chef's table or was that right after? How did that work? That happened after. And that was, um, that was a recommendation. It was once again, it was from someone that I had met while I was a focus puller, a producer. And that producer was now um, producing this film. And I think um, the director of that movie, um, Tammy, uh, Tammy Minoff, she, she went through three or four DPs before I, I saw Dawn. And she had lost one of them just like a week or two weeks before, um, before starting principal photography. And it, it had all been all these men. And I think there's these, these men cinematographers that were like really gifted and like very in demand. 
And I think what would happen is they would, this was a really low budget movie, so they would sign on with, with Tammy because she's like a really promising director, but then get probably a, a much higher paying job and, and bounce. And it happened for the final time. Um, and I was actually in Russia at the time with Chef's Table, but I got this email introducing me to Tammy and saying, hey, would you be interested in this thing? And for me, like, especially then, I was like, I was ready to DP anything. I'm like, I, I'm all over that. Or even just the idea of interviewing for a, a feature film. I didn't even know how to do that. So I was all about the opportunity to interview. I doubted I would get it, but they, just the idea of like preparing for a feature film interview, reading the script, preparing like a lookbook, having some opinions and ideas, like I was about that. And so from Russia, I began, I called her and we had like an hour long conversation. I was in Russia. She was in, you know, Hollywood. And then I said, hey, I won't be home for five more days, but would you like to meet then? She said, yes. And I was like, okay. And then I had a very intimidating meeting with her and this producer and uh, <laughs> shared all my ideas, but thought for sure I wouldn't get it. And then that evening she called me. She's like, come on board. Let's do this. And I was like, oh, gosh, maybe I've made a mistake. They start shooting in like <laughs> seven days. Wow. I don't even know how I would prepare myself to do a good job in that short amount of time. But I just I just dove in and I ended up being one of the best opportunities ever. And like my relationship with Tammy was just like it's so incredible. So, I mean, no regrets there. I don't even know if I answered your question on that one. I just no, like, no, that totally. was a really fun opportunity. I just think that like, there's a lot of people who, you know, either work at, in the camera department or on the lighting side and have, you know, big ambitions to be a cinematographer. And I think there's a big, like, sort of, um, you know, it's like a big mystery on how you make that jump. How do you make that leap? And just hearing these stories of how you've been able to do that, I think is really interesting, um, you know, to people. Um, yeah. At least to me. <laughs> I think know? I have one. I think I have one really strong opinion on that, which is um, it's best to share your desires with people. Like if you want to shoot, tell people that because they want to give you the opportunity to shoot. If you don't say anything, it won't happen. Like maybe that's maybe that's something that I'm like harboring from my college kind of like scared period. But like if I ever want to do anything nowadays, like when I was trying to transition into TP, I would just tell people that I was doing that. I would just be straightforward and like and offer myself up to like little gigs all the time. And so I think it's important to speak about the transition that you're trying to make. Like right now, I would love to operate on 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 TV in Los Angeles. So I, I'm a little more local than I've been in the last several years. And I'm just going to make that known. And it'll probably come around because there's a lot of work out there. And everyone needs a good dedicated person. And so just talk about the things you want to do. It's, it'll really make it easier. So you're, you're, you're okay going to operate on, on a TV show, even though you're not, a, you wouldn't, wouldn't be able to DP yet just because of based on your experience or? Um, I, don't, I kind of, I knew you'd ask me that. And I kind of have, I have mixed feelings about it. I think that, you know, obviously my number one goal right now is to DP. But so long as I'm taking a job that is challenging to me, I'm super stoked on it. So, you know, I think that really DPing another feature would be a good opportunity, but probably operating on like a network TV show or some bigger budget TV show would actually teach me more at this point in time. Do you know what I mean? Because right. it would be like this next level, um, high dollar situation 
where I'm operating and I really enjoy the role, role of operating. And so that would be a great chance to learn. So I think that I will, I will kind of go wherever the wind blows me so long as the opportunity is uh, pushing me forward and challenging me to do something I haven't done or don't, haven't tried. And that's a little scary. Nice. Timothy, so we're, we're kind of getting low on time here. Um, we are. Do you have any other final questions you want to ask before we get to our last five questions? No, I'm just I'm just fascinated and listening intently, so keep going. Uh, okay, yeah. <laughs> so the, the main question, I have two questions I want to ask, but I guess I'll go with this one first. So, you know, you've worked on some of the biggest movies, um, you know, out there, you know, Oscar nominated, you know, just big stuff, big TV shows. Um, and as for someone who's only worked on a few of those kind of bigger projects, I'm just curious, like, is there a difference between working on like a regular, like indie set and these big budget, like Captain America sets, or is it just the same thing, but you know, you're shooting Captain America. (laughs) I think that it's different and the same. I mean, the roles are the same, you know, you kind of, you need PAs to make a movie. You need a cinematographer, you need a gaffer. And so all the, all the roles kind of come in in the same way. I mean, obviously people are working at a higher level with more expertise, like the higher up you go. I think, I suppose the most, um, the coolest difference maybe in my opinion is just seeing like a story executed, um, with like real vision when you get on a bigger movie, right? There's a reason that that director has been hired and there's a reason those producers are there and it's because they're good at what they're doing and they have something to say. So watching a director work on these higher level, you know, features or TV show or whatever, like that's super incredible or, or um, a DP and how brilliant they are at, you know, storytelling with, with color and having a wonderful production design department. You could just watch a story become more than you ever saw on the page on these big sets. I think that that's it. That's it. It's the execution and uh, the expertise that you get to witness on these bigger sets. Like the writer is there and, and they're a genius. And you're just, it's the people that are in the higher up positions. And if you can just kind of, be near them or like absorb any amount of like uh, just their presence. That's what I enjoyed the most. Nice. Awesome. Um, And now this is kind of going back to what we were just talking about, but you know, you're saying, you know, camera operating on a big network TV show would, would be a good thing for you now in in your stage in your career. Um, Mm -hmm. Is that because your ambition is to eventually become a DP on a show like that. And by camera operating, that will give you the time in that environment to learn what you need to learn in order to be a DP on a network TV show. Or is it just because you want to learn and take it in and then you bring that experience into the next feature you, you DP or the next TV show you work on or whatever? Yeah. I don't know if I really know what my trajectory is as a DP yet. I don't know where I want to be. So, um, I think it's just that I could tell, you know, camera operating, let's say I'm the A operator on a TV show. Well, that's a really major um, role that helps you develop, like, your relationship talking with actors, your relationship translating the DP's wishes, like, on into camera movement and direction um, within the camera department. Um, you're sometimes like certain people like Adam give me like great breath when, um, camera operating for them where I get to like give my two cents about blocking and like really develop a scene, um, 
based off my composition or like I have an idea for a shot and he lets me go for it. And so there's a lot of things where like it would be so nice. It's going to take me a long time as a DP to 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 shoot a, a major TV show, right? But I can get a similar experience by being in there and being in a key role in the camera uh, department. And so it's like, I think it's an early way of, of absorbing and once again, learning from a mentor in that situation. And then, yeah, I'll take that information and I'll run with it kind of on the side in my own career and just keep building. It's like, I, I suppose it's the same tactic that I had while firsting. It's like, find a mentor, take what you can, apply it to your own life. And, and I kind of like to do things simultaneously, like I'm DPing over here, I'm camera operating, I'm, I've got my hands in all the jars, and, and I'm just going to keep doing it that way. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. I mean, I was going to ask you some of the questions, but I think you kind of wrapped up the, quest the answers to those questions and that, you know, answer. So I okay. think, think we're good. Um, okay. So we're going to move on to our final five questions. These are questions that we ask everybody that we bring on the show. And, you know, usually they're aimed at filmmakers, but I think, you know, we can do the same thing for a cinematographer and I think it'll, you yeah, know, it'll change it'll work. Um, all right, Timothy, you want to take number one? Sure. I mean, this is, all, this one is so directed at directors, I feel, but I'm interested uh, oh. to hear like, yeah, so me too. when you, when you read a script as a DP, let's say, do you imagine what the film is going to be? Because David Fincher says you're doing pretty good if you can get 70% of the, that thing that you imagine on a film set. And mm -hmm. is it the same for a DP? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You're reading through it and you can't help but visualize the scenes. Um, 100%. I don't, I don't know how, a way to... I, maybe possibly it'd be nice to remove yourself from that one reading, uh, but I don't think there's any way to, like at least for myself. So yeah, you're picturing scenes and blocking and colors and uh, potential lighting or like, oh, I used to think like even as a focus puller reading a script, like, oh, that's, that moment's going to be really tough. <laughs> like night scene exterior sprinting down the street. Uh, you know, like there's certain things that I would um, absolutely imagine and, and kind of like gear myself up for like really far in advance. Um, I think as a DP though, it's like critical to start developing um, opinions or at least ideas about scenes as you're reading them. Cause you're about, if you're reading a script, you're bound to go have a meeting about a script shortly thereafter. And like, you have to bring something to the table, you know? So it's best to just like get the gears moving right away. Nice. And then what percentage do you, are you getting from the films that you're working on now? Uh, let's see. Gosh, that is a really amazing question. Well, so you take your own thought, right? And then you have to hear about the thoughts of the, director and then you kind of have to meld them um but gosh 70 percent would be high probably i think i don't know if i want to put a percentage on it i think i i'm at a place where it's like i'm satisfied by the amount of vision uh, that translates over but i don't i but i still think i have a ways to go i just love that you said 70 percent sounds high that's great. Yeah, I don't know. That's yeah. all I need for me to hear. at this moment. <laughs> no, yeah. yeah, I can I can relate to that for sure. Because you don't have, I mean, you might want that to be a jib shot, but you don't have a jib, so um, you know the way you saw it in your head might become like a ladder shot, and you're just like, hmm, does that qualify as seventy percent? I don't know. So, so question number two: What's the thing you struggle with the most as a cinematographer? Uh, okay, so the thing that I struggle with beyond anything else is the language that I use. Um, 
with my gaffer or with my lighting department. Um, I'm really, really strong with camera department. I've been doing that for 10 years. I feel really confident and um, I can I can describe my ideas and like be really certain of them in camera department. Whereas lighting, I'm learning what what ways to talk with my gaffer and develop my ideas to be concise and like um, I need to like work on the way I describe things that I'm I'm looking to do. Um, I'm, I'm just developing that part of my brain like constantly focused on that. So. Um, I've learned by having some gaffers that like really haven't liked me very much <laughs> because I think I was like being confusing or like not asking for too much possibly or, you know, just not doing, um, not, uh, not pleasing them in some, in some amount of ways. So I had some bad experiences with those people and then I have some really excellent gaffers that I work with now that have helped me just like um, figure out better ways of like just honestly I just need to convey my ideas a little more like concisely and 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 be certain of what I want to do instead of like maybe uh, presenting too many options or like you know just being certain that I've thought my own idea out before I try to convey it to someone else and so it's language with gaffers and that it's also just the idea of like working on lighting plots ahead of time for myself they don't even have to be executed the way I've imagined but like I've at least thought out all the all the scenarios and I've come up with like the way I would do it or you know I want this to be the main light source and I've thought about this immensely and I know that we'll need to fill from here and I know that this color needs to be this or that so I spend a lot of time working lighting things out for myself that's my biggest obstacle at the moment Okay, number three, if you could travel back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? Hmm. I, I maybe would just say take more risks. Like even going back to uh, film school days, like why didn't I just get in that production department early? Take more risks. Don't be like so nervous about maybe my own work. Like it really, it took me like like five years to release a reel. And that's like a killer for a DP. Like you have nothing else, but you're real. Like that's what you need to get jobs. And I was just like so um, self-conscious about my own work that I wouldn't do that. And so I'm trying, I would just say, you know, have a little more confidence, take risks, just be like, let's go for it. Nice. Number four, do you have a goal as a cinematographer? Mm, yes. I just, I want to work on projects that have artistry in them, like, I won't be shooting a sitcom. I won't be making like vanilla kind of like romantic comedies forever. I, I want to do something um, that just has like a lot of artfulness. I'm very, very attracted to documentary films because I just feel like they have a lot of um, just kind of brilliant places they can go and subject matters that will really interest me over time. Um, or just um, I think narrative things too that, that just um, – have something to say and have artistry in them. That's that's all I'm after. And the last question is making movies hard. <laughs> making movies is really hard. Um, but it's also the best thing that anyone could ever do. Are you just saying that? Uh no, I mean that's not <laughs> It's okay if they're easy for you. No. Oh god, no. No, it's a pain. <laughs> it's the best though. That's funny. Yeah, I kind of feel like we should change the name of the show to Making Movies is Hard, uh, but it's also the most 
you know, awesome thing in the world or something like that. I mean, because I think people get the wrong idea when we say, when they hear the name of the show, they're like, oh, we just hate it so much. It's so hard. Ugh. You know, but that's not, not, obviously, it's not what we're about, you know? No. Yeah. That's awesome. Wow. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thank, oh, thank you. you Chloe. Before you hop off, can you let people know where they can find you? Sure. Where they can see some of your work and if they want to reach out and just say, hey, thanks for coming on the show. We really enjoyed hearing that. Of course. Well, I would love it if people checked out my website, which is ChloeWeaver.com. You can see my reel that I finally released. Um, you can also link to like the most of the work that I feel fond of is on there. And um, and everyone should go watch Chef's Table, every episode ever made, some of which I've been involved in and some of which I haven't and I'm just a fan of. So those are my yeah. two, the two things I'll push. Chef's Table is so good. It is so beautiful and insightful and just really, it just makes me so excited about food and cooking. It really, it, there's a lot it of really great works. people contributing to that. It's, it's incredible. Nice. Guys, thank you. It was really like it was really fascinating to be a part of this. I appreciate you both very much. Oh, thank you. Oh, it was no, awesome. Thank you. We we we, yeah. we need yeah, to talk to more people like you that give us insights into the other crew crew positions. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, well, if you're looking for anyone, I could probably connect you. Let me know. Yeah. We'll hit you up. All right, Timothy, take us home. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you like the show, tell your friends about it or leave a rating for the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you want to get in contact with us directly, you can send us an email to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook with the handle at MMIH Podcast. We also have a filmmakers community on Facebook. It's called Indie Filmmakers Community. There's a button on our Facebook page that directs you there. And I think we have about 450 members right now, um, all having really cool, interesting discussions about filmmaking. People are asking questions. Other filmmakers are chiming in. I'm asking questions. Ulrich is asking questions. It's just a really cool place to like expand what we do here on the podcast. So if there's something that you want to um, hear about specifically, post it up in the indie filmmakers community and yeah, hear what other filmmakers have to say about it. And Ulrich and I will chime in too. And our website is makingmoviesishard.com. If you want to check out the, all the things, like links to the things that we talk about on the show, you'll get a link to Chloe's page on there. Um, also, just kind of a general outline of what we talked about. And while you're there, sign up to receive our weekly newsletter, which is the show notes delivered directly to your inbox. And um, you can also listen to the podcast directly from that email if you don't have a, a podcast app or anything on your phone. I think that's about it. Anything else you can think of? Oh, I know. One last thing. You didn't show up to the alternate table uh, read. We will be podcasting that in a few weeks. Right. So keep a lookout for it. If it was on your radar and you're wondering, hey, where is that episode? It's It'll be out, I think, in two weeks. Okay. Yeah, two weeks. Or who, who knows? I'm not sure if we're going to do it as a bonus episode or if we're going to do it in an actual episode slot. Um, I guess we have to decide. But I think... Yeah, TBD probably a bonus episode just because i don't know how many people are going to really want to listen to that as the weekly episode but um yeah i don't know we'll have to wait and we'll have to wait and see so the live stream of that should be up on our facebook page right now yeah so live you, stream yep yeah if you want to look at it now um there'll be a video up there but we also will release an episode as a podcast because i know that's how you guys are used to consuming us yeah it should be a live stream and 
we're going to be doing a three camera sh- or even four camera shoot of this thing. Fancy. Yeah, really fancy. <laughs> and then I'm sure we're going to roll on the cameras themselves so we'll have the actual footage. So we, we may do a little snippet of something that we think is interesting and do like shorter videos um, that we will release or something, or we'll just have the live stream. I'm not exactly sure what makes the most sense, but um, you know, I mean, it's all, all for fun, all to just get this kind of content out into the world for people to check it out. So um, we'll see what makes the most sense. Really don't know how this table read is going to go, but um, <laughs> yeah, we'll find out. It'll hopefully be I'll learn a lot from it. No matter what. I think you will. Yeah. (laughs) All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. And yeah, talk to you guys next week. Bye-bye.